This is our first lab on Romans 9. And of course, Romans 9 is preceded by Romans 8, which I argued was the greatest chapter, is the greatest chapter in the Bible, full of promises that we love in the midst of suffering, one of the most strengthening, glorious, hope-giving chapters in the Bible. And now the question is, how do Romans 9 and Romans 8 relate to each other? And that's what we're going to learn in these first five verses together with verse 6. So, Father, I pray that our eyes would be open to see with our mind what is here and to understand it and to see with our heart and so to feel some of the amazing and painful emotions that Paul felt concerning his own people. And so show us where he's going and help us to be able to go with him now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I think of Romans 8 as a kind of glorious house, a a beautiful mansion filled with rooms that you could spend your whole life exploring and you would enjoy every one of them. And I think of Romans 9 as a massive, underground, unshakable, unfathomable foundation for that house, which is often, like most foundations, often unseen, sometimes unappreciated, but never, never unnecessary. When I finished graduate school, what, 40 years ago or so, I knew within a few years I would have to write a book on this chapter, and I did. It was the second book I wrote. It was called uh, The Justification of God. And the reason is because year after year, semester after semester, class after class, students would raise questions about God's sovereignty and about his commitment to his promises and his covenant keeping, and I would appeal to this chapter and they would, they would push back and say, no, it doesn't mean that, or you can't use it that way. It doesn't have that application. And I knew I've got to come to terms with this chapter. And so that's what we're going to try to do in these sessions together. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in his heart. Why, Paul? And he gives the reason right here. For I could wish, and we'll come back to why that word could is there in future sessions, that I myself, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, the Jewish people. He's one of them, and he loves them with all of his heart. And they appear to be accursed and cut off from Christ, such that Paul wishes he could stand in their place. And then in these verses 4 through 5, it appears that what Paul's doing is listing the privileges of Israel so that we feel the the tragedy of verse 3. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the covenantal commitments. And from their race, this is the best of all, according to the flesh is the Christ, the Messiah, who is speechless wonder, God over all. The Christ is God, blessed forever. And the Jewish people in Paul's day and to this very day have by and large 
rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God over all, and are therefore cursed and cut off from Christ. And before we draw out the implication of that for this chapter, let's look at some other verses that say that. 27 verses later, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Jesus, speaking to the Jewish leaders, I tell you, many will come from east and west, that's Gentiles, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom the ones that you would expect to inherit the promises, will be thrown into outer darkness in that place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what makes Paul's heart break, is that the very people who are the sons of the kingdom have spurned their Messiah and are therefore spurning the kingdom and will be cast into its alternative. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Jewish leader who comes to him at night, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, a Jewish leader, are born again, you can't see the kingdom of of God. You can't see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, Nicodemus, you and all your Jewish compatriots, if you don't experience Christ, Jesus, as your Messiah, and are born again through him, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this summary statement in Matthew 21, Jesus said to the Jews after he had told the parable, I, have you never read in the scriptures the stone, that's Jesus, that the builders, that's the Jewish leaders who should be able to recognize the precious cornerstone when they see one, the builders rejected it has become the cornerstone? He's raised from the dead and the cornerstone of the new building of the kingdom, the church. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and that's the church. So the kingdom is taken away. The sons of the kingdom are thrown into outer darkness, and Paul is heart sick. So, this verse here, verse 3, is saying, I wish I could, because they're cursed, and they're cut off from Christ. And that raises, of course, a massive problem for Romans 8. Romans 8 hangs entirely on whether God's Word stands and if God's word hasn't stood for Israel, in spite of all these, these promises here, all these promises, all these covenants, all the giving of the law, all the adoption, all the glory, if, if that hasn't worked for Israel, why do we, the church, think it should work for us? That's the issue, as Paul now turns to solve it, and here's what he says. But it is not, it is not as though the Word of God has failed.
That's the point of Romans 9. Indeed, it's the point of Romans 9 to 11. And our whole hope in chapter 8, with all of its glorious promises, hangs on that being true. And Paul believes that because of the lostness of Israel, Jews being cast out into outer darkness, the word of God looks to many, seems to have failed. Has it? That's what this chapter is about. And he says, no. How can that be?